Well, good morning, church. I, I hope that already this morning you are blessed by, by being here. There are very few places that are like this. Very few places where we can gather together and we can sing and praise and that we can also celebrate going to the ends of the earth and then turn around and just pray for the daughter of one of our members that's, that's having surgery. That's, that's an amazing thing when a church can be united across that many things. And I, and I hope already that you have been ministered to. And one of the other things that I just take great joy in about this place is also the way that we preach and teach through the Bible, one book at a time, one chapter at a time, one verse at a time, so that we can all hear from God and have a chance to study his word together. And, and we don't just preach on topics, we get a chance to see everything across the course of a book and across the course of a chapter and see everything that there is to have and not take the chance to pull any of it out of context. And one of the other blessings that that gives us is that it lets you read ahead because it's never a mystery where we're going next. You know, so I, just by show of hands, how many of you guys already read chapter 14 because you knew that's what we were going to talk, talk about this morning? Anybody? Any, anybody? Okay, a few over here. Okay, those of you guys with your hands up know that I'm in trouble. The rest of you guys are going to figure that out as we go along because this morning we're talking about tongues. Uh, and I, I've heard numerous times people suggest that you know, Aaron leaves when it's time to talk about the difficult things. And, and I know because most of the time I'm the one that is planning where he's going to be at or buying his tickets or, 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 or doing those things, that that's not the case. But when you look at last week he preached on love and this week I preached on speaking in tongues, like that's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good case, I think, if, 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 if ever I did say so. But this is an issue that we're going to have a lot of different opinions on. And I think that's something that we need to recognize from the outset is that we all come to a, a passage like this in Scripture with some preconceived notions. And, and that's why I think what we, what we sung just a minute ago matters so much because we have to be willing to walk up to a passage like this and, and really be willing to lay down traditions and man-made religion and say, I'm not going to let that inform what I think. Instead, I'm going to let the Word of God inform what I think. And that's a hard thing to do. I, I, I want to I be honest. It's not easy, okay? But we're going we're gonna to endeavor to do that together, and I hope that you'll go on this uh, journey with me. So let's... Uh, we're we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go um, all the way through verse 25 this morning, which is a large section of text. Uh, and some of your Bibles, depending on the translation, you might see a sort of a subject break uh, in verse, tw like right above verse 20 instead of right above verse 26. Um, so we'll probably talk about that last passage again a little bit next week as well. But it's very relevant to what we're talking about here. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, you, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, 
One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and all, and I'm sorry, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Would you guys join me in prayer this morning? Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its truth, Lord, that surpasses all time. God, words that are written generation and millennia ago are just as true today as when they were written, and you have just as much for us as when they were written to the church in Corinth. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear from you, Lord, that we would set aside things that we carry into this message, Lord, whether it's uh, a perspective or another or even a disinterest, Lord, and that we would just uh, gaze into your word, ready to hear from you, ready to be transformed, Lord, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, what, what is all this about? And I, and I think, I, I do think it's true that some of us carry in a very strong perspective that uh, that tongues are absolutely something that we should see everywhere. And some of us say nobody should ever speak in tongues. And then there's some of you guys that are like, well, before I got to this chapter right here, I really hadn't given it much thought at all. And I don't know if I'm interested in hearing about it, but it matters. It matters. And it matters because where we've been. And I just want to remind you because it's important to understand what Paul has to say about this by understanding the line of thought that we've been on. And that line of thought started way back in chapter 11, right, when he wrote to them about the divisions that were going on in the church, about the things that were causing disunity in the body. And then he went on to, to talk about the, the ungodly way in which they were taking the Lord's Supper, right, where they were depriving some people in the congregation. Everybody did it for themselves instead of it being something that was God-honoring in a way that they could take it together, then he moved on to talk about the different spiritual gifts that they've been given in chapter 12. And just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how that makes up the body of the church and how every gift is different, and they all serve a purpose together. And then last week, Aaron got that softball of a sermon on love, right? Uh, but that love was about how we put these spiritual gifts into place and how we exercise the gifts that we've been given for us to only pick up here in 14. And man, this is why I appreciate Paul because he, he's so full of grace because his objective is not to just beat the Corinthian church over the head with what he thinks about it, but instead to lead them along a path where they begin to understand the issue rightly. But then we get to chapter 14 and he's like, okay, well, we've been leading this, we've been leading this direction. Now I'm going to be full of truth, too, and I'm going to tell you explicitly what I think uh, about these things that are causing issues among you. And that, that's how we get here. That's how we get to this conversation about tongues. Now, I'm going to, the, the outline this morning is going to be sparse. It's going to be different than I would normally do it. It's going to be different than Aaron typically does it. There's, re there's really just four points, okay? And I haven't given you all of the sub points like I would normally do because I don't want you to be looking at the screen and struggling to write down what's up there, I want you to be looking in your Bible 
and seeing what it says. And as the Lord shows you things there, I want you to make note of those things, okay? So you're going to have to listen, and you're going to have to pay attention, and it's not going to be all written out on the screen for you. I'm just going to give you four big points. And the first one is a pursuit of love. That's how he starts this, this, this sort of transition in the text is by saying, pursue love. Now, this makes sense because in chapter 13, he was talking all about the value of love and how we minister to one another, right? But he's, he makes this transition by saying, pursue love. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what, does it, what does it mean to pursue love? Well, that depends on what you're saying love is, right? We talked some about this last week, but this word that Paul is using in this first sentence is, is agape, right? And you guys have come to learn that this is, this is not love that is a feeling, which is the way we typically define love. This is love that is sacrificial. This is love that puts others above ourselves. This is love that is an action. It's something we have to put in practice as we constantly, much like God does for us, set aside the things that, uh, that, that are valuable to me and pursue another in love. It's an action. And so he says, pursue love. And then he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And so the only conclusion that we can come to is that our pursuit of love ought to inform how we desire and what gifts we desire and by extension, which gifts we promote. If the pursuit of love, that sacrificial, putting myself down here, putting others up here, for the goal of building up the church, love is what we ought to pursue, then it only makes sense that the gifts that I desire ought to be to that end, right? So the gifts that I desire shouldn't be the gifts that make me look good, they shouldn't be the gifts that make me look spiritual. They shouldn't be the gifts that would cause other people to want to exalt me and put me on a pedestal. They should be instead the gifts that have the most to offer my brothers and sisters around me as I seek to build them up in love as I pursue love. And so that matters and, and some of you might would ask, and it's a reasonable question. In fact, there's tons of commentators that speculate on this. How do, you, how do you desire a spiritual gift? It's something that's given by the Holy Spirit. How do, you, how do you work towards a spiritual gift and desire something that's a gift of the Holy Spirit? But to me, that's kind of a, that's kind of a silly question to ask because we all know how this works, right? Like, I have a four-year-old. Since July, she has been earnestly desiring a horse, and asking me for one for Christmas, right? Because that's what's on her heart. It's July, Christmas is six months away, but what's on her heart and her mind is a horse. And so she is desiring a horse, and she's coming to me and going, Dad, you know, really would like a horse. I, like, she has no comprehension of the fact that I have no way to provide a horse for her or no place to keep it, but she really wants a horse. That, that's not different, really, then when we fix our minds on a purpose that is supposed to exist for us, and then we desire the gifts from the Holy Spirit to be able to fulfill that purpose. It's just a matter of what is our mind fixed on. Is it fixed on pursuing love for the good of our brothers and sisters, or is it fixed on spiritual gifts that make me feel good, that make me look good, that make me seem religious? And then do we pursue those instead of pursuing the ones that are for the building up of the church? And so we are supposed to pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts that contribute to that in a meaningful way. And so the question becomes, you know, because he says this, he says this twice in here, which I, I think is something that is worth us noting. He, he says this, a very similar thing at the very end of chapter 12, if you guys remember. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will still show you a more excellent way. And that's when he goes into talking about love, and he brings it back to love and says these gifts are about how we pursue love and build up the church that is around us. And so then we can ask ourselves, what gifts, if that's the goal, 
if it's supposed to be that I am loving the people that are around me in a sacrificial way and seeking the good of the body as I desire spiritual gifts, well, then what spiritual gifts should I desire? And, and, I, and I think that those are, we can think of some of those things, right? Like we could say gifts like hospitality, that ability to be uh, welcoming, right, is, is a gift that works to the benefit of the body. Generosity is a gift that works to the benefit of the body. Teaching is a gift that works to the benefit of the body because it seeks to build others up. The, the ability to encourage and exhort others around you. Those are all gifts that aren't, they're not for the benefit of the person that holds them. They're for the benefit of the body. And so those are, those are a few things, but there's tons more that we could think about. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I, is the goal in my spirituality for me to look spiritual? Or am I pursuing love? and how to love others around me in the body, and do I want, do I earnestly desire gifts that would help me to do that? Because really, those are the gifts that are full of humility. Those are the gifts that you, you never see anybody standing on a chair going, look at how gifted I am at this, because they, they are full of love for others. They are wrapped in humility, and they see their purpose as being to benefit and build up others in the church. And so Paul has given us this instruction by which we can look at the gifts that are being poured out. And we can say, okay, is this an element of me wanting to love and earnestly pursuing the right gifts, desiring the right gifts for that? Or is this a, this is a desire of mine to seem religious? So that was the, that was the, that was the first point. The second one I want you to see First, the pursuit of love. The second one I want you to see is that there is clearly a benefit to prophecy. That's what he says. He says right here in verse 2, right? He says, For one who speaks in tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Then in verse 3, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And then in verse 1 there, especially, as you desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there's some benefit. There's some benefit that we need to understand as to why Paul is saying, as you're desiring spiritual gifts for the good of the body, you should desire especially that you might prophesy. And that, that means we got to pause and just think about this for a second and make sure we have a right understanding of what he's talking about when he says to prophesy, right? Because most of us hear prophecy, we hear prophet, and we think uh, somebody that can tell the future, right? Like that's our, that's our first inclination is, oh, we should earnestly desire that all of us be able to tell the future. And that, that's not at all what he has in mind. That is sometimes the gift that we see exercised by the Old Testament prophets. But I want to tell you, church, that it's for a purpose, the, the prophets sometimes brought a warning from God and said, this thing is going to happen if you don't repent. Or, depending on how far you get into the prophetic books, no matter whether you decide to repent or not, this thing is still going to happen because this is the judgment from God. But that was so the people would know that this word came from God. In fact, we get methods for testing whether a word is from God, and it has to do with the validity of what the prophet said whether that comes true or not. So yes, there is a sense in the prophetic books that sometimes it means telling the future, but more importantly than that, it means telling what God has said. What a prophet always does, it says, thus says the Lord. It is a message from God. Now, we live in a day and time where all of, all of Scripture is closed. Everything that we need to know about God for life and for godliness is contained in this Scripture. So there is no, there's no new revelation coming to us where God spoke to me and he told me this thing that's not in this book. Okay, That's, that's not the context that we have prophecy in nowadays. What it still means, though, is somebody who's willing to say, thus says the Lord. It just happens to be that he didn't give it to me in a vision. He told it to me in, you know, 
First John or Revelation or Jude or wherever. And you're able to point to it and say, this is what God has to say on this subject. That's, that's the benefit of prophecy is being able to go to your brother and sister and be able to say, this is what God has to say about this. And because of that, this is what you ought to do. And he, he gives us some examples in here as he says for, um, oh, lost my page. One more. For upbuilding or edifying in some of your translations, for encouragement, for consolation. So the purposes of this gift of prophecy are so that we would build others up, so that we would encourage others, so that we would console others. Have you ever been to a brother and sister and offered them something from the word of God in their time of need that either encouraged them, emboldened them in the task that was ahead, or consoled them about something that they were going through? That is the gift of prophecy in the modern sense. And the other thing that I want you guys to know is the gospel going out is also a part of this gift. Because I can't think of anything that thus says the Lord fits more to than thus says the Lord. Every one of us are sinners. And the biggest problem in every one of our lives is sin. And the biggest problem in every one of our lives because of that sin is that it separates us from God. Thus says the Lord. That's what he says about it. But he also says that there is not another name under heaven by which man might be saved than Jesus Christ. And, and that, is, that is going to people with the truth and telling them that the gospel is what will save them from where they find themselves, not anything, that they would, anything else that they would put their hope in that every one of us stands separated from God, but that God has already provided the solution. And so not only teaching, not only encouraging, but also going to folks with the gospel is what is in light here when we start to talk about this gift of prophecy that there is clearly a benefit to. And then, and then he lists them. They're the ones that I just read. He says the benefit of prophecy, and he says it several times in here, is for upbuilding. He says in verse 3, is for, for upbuilding. Then he says in verse 4, the one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So there's a, there's a contrast there. And then again in verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church might be built up. And so clearly edification or the building up of the body and the individual people, people in it is a clear benefit to teaching, and to prophecy. It's also a pretty consistent theme in, uh, in Paul's writings here in, in 1 Corinthians. And I, I want to just remind you, again, this is why we teach through entire books, because you can just flip back over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you can see exactly what Paul has to say about this subject. In, in chapter 3, in verse 9, he says... For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And let each one take care how he builds upon it. So there is very clear this connection in, across this whole letter where Paul is talking about how the church is being built up, how the individual people of the church are being built up because... That, that's how God desires it to be. And then in verse 16, he says in chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And so as we're building up the church, as we're building up the body through these gifts, we're actually building up the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And, and building up doesn't just mean making bigger. It means strengthening. It means, it means undergirding. It means supporting and so as we think about the benefit of prophecy, it comes so that we might strengthen the body, strengthen the believers in the church, strengthen as a result of that the church as a whole, so that it might accomplish the purpose that God has given it. So he says it's for building up. He also says it's for encouragement. It's, it's for, uh, in some of your translations, it says exhortation, right? 
It is this, this idea of how do we come to one another and spur each other on to the things that God has called us to do. That's one of the purposes that, that this gift of prophecy serves in our lives is that we can speak into each other's life when we're facing a challenge or a trial, when we're being tempted, and provide encouragement, provide that edification, provide that exhortation to pursue what God has called us to do. And you know what's, what's really interesting? I had to study quite a bit for this passage because I'm not terribly well educated, uh, and I wanted to make sure that I handled it correctly. And so I, I learned some things as I was studying uh, for this message that weren't really directly related to tongues, even though that was kind of what I was studying. But one of the things that I learned was this word, this word for encouragement, this word for exhortation, is actually the same word in the Greek the, the male noun form of this word is the word that is used in many cases to describe the Holy Spirit. It's the word that means helper and encourager and comforter. And so is it, is it any wonder that part of what we're called to do as we are a benefit to each other, as we love each other, as we seek to build each other up, is to fulfill that same purpose in each other's lives that the Holy Spirit fills in us? And is that helper when we need it? Is that encourager when things that are difficult? Does that come as any surprise to you that that's part of the role that we're supposed to fill in each other's lives? No, it makes total sense that God would use us as he's gifted us to be encouragers to one another, to spur each other on to the things that he's called us to do. So to build each other up, to encourage and to exhort. And then the last thing there is to console or to comfort and again, as we think about the benefit of prophecy when it comes to consoling other people and how that ought to look within the body, it, it's really clear, right? There, there's, there's very few things that show how much you love than your willingness to walk alongside somebody who is suffering, to walk alongside somebody who is mourning, and to be that consolation to them, to be that comfort to them. In that difficult time, that is exactly what we see in chapter 13 as we talk about how love ought to look in the church and the benefit of love alongside these gifts. There's nothing that is more evident that we are Christ followers than our desire to love the people that are around us inside this body and out and to do things that nothing other than love would motivate you to do, to, to sit with people as they weep, to care for them as they struggle to walk alongside them in the most difficult times of life. These are the things that he has given us here as a clear benefit to prophecy, building up of the church, encouragement, consolation. And then I, I just want to finish this thought on the building up of, uh, of the church as a benefit of <clears throat> prophecy by drawing your attention to 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'll let you guys flip over there. I got this handy-dandy bookmark, so it got, I got there really quick. Uh, but you guys, you guys flip over there. 1 Thessalonians 5. I, I just want to make this picture as clear as I can to why we ought to focus our efforts as we think about our giftedness on the building up of the church and the encouragement of one another and not on gifts that benefit ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Okay, there's that same theme again, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Okay, so we, we want you to encourage and listen to the people that are over you in the Lord, but listen to how it goes on. And we urge you, brothers, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every 
form of evil. I can't think of a more holistic picture of what it looks like to be building each other up using the gifts that we have given. There is something for everyone in the body in that passage because we're meant to be constantly encouraging, building up, consoling, exhorting one another so that we might all accomplish the purpose that God has given to us. And, and that's why I say that there is clearly a benefit to this gift of prophecy that Paul has in mind here. But there is also a caution on tongues. And that's really the majority of this text is a caution on tongues. That's point number three. And, and it's, it's all over. And I want to just take you through a quick study of all of the things that Paul points to as cautionary uh, on the gift of tongues. First off, right there in verse 2. And I know what you guys are thinking. He's on his third point. We're only in verse 2. Does he know what time it is? Yes, there's a clock back there. I know exactly what time it is, but I want you guys to see this. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So the first thing I want you to see cautionarily about speaking in tongues is that without proper interpretation, it doesn't benefit anyone because nobody understands it. And, and I want to, just like we stopped to define prophecy, I want to stop for a second to define speaking in tongues because... Again, as I, as I studied uh, through teaching this subject, I wanted to be sure that, that I was bringing a biblical perspective. And there's obviously a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me uh, that have written on the subject. But there's a lot of people who have very entrenched views and who are unwilling to budge from them at all. Uh, one of those, namely, we've mentioned is John MacArthur, right? He's a staunch cessationist. And so when he looks at a passage like this, he is going to take a view that pretty much makes it not possible for there to be any use of tongues. And, and there's a lot of ways that I love the things that MacArthur writes. I love the things that he says. But there, one of the ways that you will see people do this a lot is they'll say, well, this word tongues means different languages. And, and they're right. They're right. In the Greek, there is, there is no difference the word that is actually written in the original manuscript, there is no difference between the word that is used for a tongue in the sense of different languages or different uh, you know, vocabularies for different dialects of people and the word that is used for uh, speaking in tongues in the sense of uh, you know, utterances that nobody can understand. However, if we look at the context of this entire passage, there, there, you can't come to the conclusion that what's in light here is that Paul is talking about other languages. It, it, it just isn't possible from the context because it, Corinth was a city where there was tons of people speaking all different languages. If there was a need for an interpreter, somebody to say, oh, this person is speaking this, this language and come and say that, it, it would be something that would be easy to have. And then look at the context that he gives he says, and, and verse 2 is a great context to set that up, one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, so there aren't men that can understand what it is that they're saying, but to God, no one understands him. This is not, and then he goes on to say, he utters mysteries in his spirit. This is not something where they're probably likely speaking a different language. This is something that is not discernible uh, by, by another person. And so I want to be clear that what I believe he's talking about when we're talking about speaking in tongues is not should people be allowed to speak in other languages in church, and, and I don't think that there would be any need for a biblical book to be written on that. What he is talking about is uttering things that cannot be understood by other people apart from the Spirit of God. And so, one, he says, no, nobody can understand it. What's the point of exercising a spiritual gift that nobody understands what you're saying but God? There is also, so, so one is there's an issue of, of without proper interpretation, it doesn't benefit anybody because they can't understand it. Two, there's a tendency, and this is really, I think, the reason why he wrote to them, there is a tendency for this gift to be self-indulgent and self-aggrandizing. The, the issue with speaking in tongues primarily is that it causes people to exalt 
a person that can do it. And it causes people to desire that gift so that they might be exalted because now they seem holier than everybody else because this person is speaking in tongues. And you guys are like, finally, we're getting to the stuff that I was, uh, this is the juicy part, right? But look, look, at what he, look at what he says. He says it in verse four. The one who speaks in tongues builds up who? Himself. Because nobody else can understand it. So the only purpose for this activity and I shouldn't say the only purpose, but a common misused purpose for this activity is that it builds up the, the speaker and not the audience. It builds up this person as looking very spiritual because he can do something that I can't do, and it doesn't build up the people that hear it. So it, nobody understands it, and so therefore it doesn't benefit them. It has the, the possibility of... Uh, building up the person who exercises the gift and not the people that hear it. It also potentially keeps us from being motivated or called to action. Look at the example that he gives in verse uh, 7 and 8 about the flute and the bugle, right? This flute, the flute and the harp are beautiful instruments. We just got finished singing together in this room. We know that when, the, when there is good music, that there is the, this ability to stir something up within us and he gives this example of the flute or a harp that just plays indistinct sounds. And so nobody, nobody even knows what's being played. There's no enjoyment to that, to, to instruments that don't play sounds that go according to the rules of music. And then he also gives the example of the bugle, this, this instrument that is designed to sound when an army should retreat or when it should advance or what action it should take. And he says, well, without them playing the right sounds... It's not even possible to know what to do. And so we, we, risk, we risk not being motivated by what we've heard. We risk not knowing what action to take because we can't understand what is being said. We also, um, in some cases, I think it's important for us to realize that, that, these, that speaking in tongues specifically can just be ritualistic. It can be something that is done because pagan cultures around us do it. That's, in fact, part of what was happening in Corinth, is that many of these people uh, came, came to believe because the gospel message came to Corinth. And we've already talked about how the, the temple prostitutes used to come down out of the temple there in Corinth, right, and, and how that caused all this sexual sin. Well, one of the other things that happens in a lot of religions worldwide is that there is typically a person who claims to hear from the gods and utters things in inaudible speech, and then a priest will just interpret what that is and say that this is the message from the god. In many cases, not always, in many cases, much like the temple prostitutes, it's a woman that would babble things, and then the priest would come along and say, this is the message that God has said. And so in, in the fact that there is this very similar behavior in the pagan culture, there is a temptation to say, well, man, that looks, that looks really spiritual. Like, man, they must have really heard from God. I didn't understand it, but only the priest like, understood what was happening and translated the message, and whoa, the gods are speaking. There, there is a temptation, and I'm not saying that this is the case in every case, but I'm saying that there is a temptation to look spiritual by copying a behavior that almost every other religion in the world has some form of that behavior because it's meant to look spiritual. It's meant to look like it is informed from the gods. So it can be ritualistic and taken out of pagan culture. It also has the possibility of being vanity. Look at what he says there um, in verse uh, 9. So, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. I mean, I don't know of a better definition. That's, that's Solomon's definition of uh, vanity from Ecclesiastes. He's, he's basically saying, like, you, you haven't accomplished anything. You've just put words into the air, and, and they have no meaning, and they've accomplished nothing. And then he says again in verse 14, about this same idea. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so it's this idea that it's, it's just vain because there is nothing productive that comes 
from it. It also has the possibility of seeming religious. And, and I think this is one of the most, this is one of the most dangerous ones. I, I think it's the one that probably is most pertinent for, for the church today. But look at what he says in verse 12. He says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, so since you desire to look religious and to have evidence that the Spirit is, pull, is poured out on you, instead strive to excel in building up the church. He's describing a behavior whereby we look at a person who can speak in tongues and we go, man, they must be, they must be so religious. They must be so close to God that they can talk like that. We, we desire something because it seems like that person is close to God. But what Paul is telling us through, through all of these other examples is that, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, it's just speaking into the air. It's meaningless. It, it, it brings no benefit to the people that are around you that are hearing it. And the only person that benefits is the person that's speaking it. And then the other caution there that I, I want you guys to see is it, it can be dangerous to, to outsiders, to people that are not from the church. Look at what he says in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And, and this word that he uses for an outsider is actually, in the NASB, I think does a little bit better job translating it. It says, the one who fills the place of the ungifted. So what is the benefit to somebody who is ungifted in this gift that you are exhibiting? Well, he doesn't even know whether to agree with what you're saying or not. It's a barrier to him because you might as well, you may very well be giving thanks. That's what Paul says. But how does he know that he's supposed to say amen? Because he doesn't know what you're saying. Because he doesn't share this gift with you. And so you don't know whether to agree or to disagree with what's being taught. So that's a lot of reasons. That's a lot of caution, right? And as I sat and I studied this passage, you know, the thing that I couldn't help but think to myself is, if, if he spends all of these verses giving caution on the speaking in tongues, pointing out reasons why it's not productive for the body, pointing out things that make it difficult for the building up of the church, why doesn't he outright just say, don't speak in tongues? I mean, that, that's the question that we have to wonder, and yet that's not what he says. And in fact, I want to draw your attention to what he says. After giving all of this caution, in verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And, and some people, I, again, those same people would point to that passage and go, well, Paul spoke Hebrew, and he spoke Greek, and he spoke, you know, potentially Aramaic, and that's probably what he means. He probably means speaking in other languages. I don't see how you could get there from here. That's not the context of what he's talking about. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but look at, look at what he says as a response. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. And so he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. You know what Paul knew? You know, the reason that Paul doesn't say, just never speak in tongues he knew in Acts chapter 3 when the disciples are gathered together in the upper room and the rushing of wind comes in. He wasn't, he wasn't one of those disciples at the time, but he knows, he has heard this rushing of wind that came in and every person began to speak in another language. And not, not only that, but the people that were outside began to hear them in, a, in their own language and heard them testify to what Jesus had done. And many of them, because of that, were convinced not only does he know that because he, he heard it from the other apostles, but he also knows personally. In Acts chapter 19, we see it written. It's one of the few places we see it written down. But he knows personally because he went to the church at Ephesus. 
And, and they're saying, we never received this Holy Spirit that you've been talking about. And Paul says to them, well, who's whose name were you baptized in? And they say, well, we were baptized in the name of John the Baptist. And he's like, well, there's your problem. And, and he proceeds to baptize them in the name of Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is that immediately they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to prophesy and they began to speak in tongues. And so the only way that I, the only logical conclusion that I can come to is that Paul, Paul doesn't say this because he's seen it with his own eyes. He doesn't say don't do it. Because he's seen in the early church how the speaking of tongues was at, at some points in time a confirmation that these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean it's a gift intended for this day and age and to be exercised now? I think a lot more of the reasons point to no than, than point to yes. But that's why Aaron and I both, as we've taught through the, this, this passage in 1 Corinthians, have taken the perspective that this is absolutely a way that God has used his Holy Spirit, and God absolutely is powerful enough to use his Holy Spirit again in that way. And so we're not going to take the perspective of you should never do it, but much like Paul, there's a lot more reasons to be cautious than there, than there are to embrace it. There's a lot more things that we ought to be cautious about, and not only that, there's a lot more gifts that we ought to desire more than that. And I think that is fundamentally the reason that he was writing to them. And, and it's fundamentally the, the problem that we have now. In, in our church, in this day, we desire things that seem religious. Things that we can point to and say, man, God must be moving because blah, blah, blah. And instead, what he is saying is we should pursue love and we should earnestly desire the gifts that are meant for the building up of the church, not for the seeming of being religious. And that, that brings me to the last thing that I want to share with you guys this morning. So we have a pursuit of love, a benefit to prophecy, a caution on tongues. And this is really where I'm glad that we're ending up because this, this is, I think, the, the big application for us, a right understanding of our purposes assembling together. So a right understanding of our assembly. And he gives us so much, so much gold in this passage for us to understand why we gather together as a body. First off, I want you to see that instruction, not just instruction given out, but instruction understood is the goal. You see, look at Look at the contrast that he gives us in 7, 8, and 9 as he talks about this, this flute or this harp, which are beautiful instruments but don't give distinct notes in this, in this example, or the bugle that doesn't give the instruction that it's supposed to give, or so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? And then verse 15 that we, that we just talked about. You know, he said, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. There is an element of our minds are meant to be engaged in this study. It is not just an emotional exercise. It is not just something seeming spiritual for the sake of being spiritual. It is the word being taught and it being understood and our minds being engaged. And as a result of that, action. As a result of that, us walking it out in obedience. That's the purpose, not something that just seems religious. To that end, we have to be able to know what is being said so we can know whether to, to agree or disagree. I know we read this, but I want to read it again because it's so pertinent. He says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? When he does not know what you are saying, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. There's a need to be within this assembly discerning. And as we study the word together, we have to understand together and we have to be willing to say yes and amen. That is right. And I agree with it. Or no, that doesn't match. That doesn't line up. I, 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 that's not that's not the conviction that I have, but if we can't understand what is being taught, if we can't look at it together, 
then how do we know whether we need to say yes and amen or no? We don't. And, and so that's an important part of us fellowshipping together in assembly and a, an important part of about how we're built up together. So we have to be able to know what is being said so we can agree or disagree. I also want you to see that the church assembly is a place for both believers and unbelievers, and both can benefit from the teaching. And I, I know, I recognize that there are some people that, that don't believe this to be true. They believe that the church is only a place for believers. And, and I would ask you, if you look at, you know, verse 23 there, and it says, if therefore the whole church comes together, okay, so there's a church that's meeting together, a public assembly, and all speak in tongues, and an outsider, okay, so we said already that means, that can mean ungifted, but look at the second word there, or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're out of your mind? So there is, there is obviously a context where even in this day and age, where, where there, was, there was an understanding that people who were either not part of that fellowship or complete unbelievers would potentially come into the church and hear and see what is going on. And Paul draws this picture. And I, I want you guys to picture it with me because sometimes we get way too far into the words and I want you to just stop and picture what he's saying. He's saying, what if somebody who is an unbeliever or an outsider comes into the church and all 200 people in this room were in here speaking in tongues? What are they going to think? He tells you right there. Y'all look at the passage. What are they going to think? They're crazy. What in the world? These people are out of their mind. But then he draws us a parallel. And he says, now on the other hand, if an, an unbeliever or an outsider comes in and you guys are all prophesying, you're all looking at the word of God, you're all discerning what it has for you, you're all applying it to your life, you're encouraging and exhorting one another with the word of God, Look at, what, look at the difference. But if, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's, that's the contrast in the picture that he gives us, is the difference between somebody looking at the church of God and saying, man, these people are nuts, which still might happen. That's okay. Sometimes we think we're a little nuts. And somebody looking at him and being convicted, recognizing the truth, and then coming to the realization that God is really in this place. As the, as the band comes, that's, that's where I want to close us this morning. Because I think that that is the very real, very pertinent danger that we face today. Is we have bought this idea, in some cases, that the louder the music, the more smoke and fog and lights, the more people running around the room with their hands up, the more religious a place is. And don't get me wrong. We, this is a place where we love to worship. Nothing gets me more excited than when we're singing a song and I see something on the screen and before it's time to sing it, I recognize that it comes directly from the word of God and it's his truth. There's not, a, there's not a lot of things that get me more excited than that. So I'm not downplaying it. I am saying that we cannot let that be what defines whether a place is filled with the spirit of God or not. What Paul says instead is that we should look. And if there's a body and they're all together and they're, they're prophesying, they're reading the word of God, they're being convicted and changed by it. And it calls the people that come into that body as an outsider to account. And it forces them to deal with the sin in their life and recognize what we started off by talking about. Thus says the Lord, first and foremost, that we are all full of sin. And it separates all of us from God. And if they come into that place and are called to account by all, that's what's going to cause people to go, man, this is, really, this is really a place where the Spirit of God dwells. Not, not a place with loud music, not a place with flashy preaching. I'm not wearing high tops and a denim jacket or, uh, you know, we don't have fancy slides. No, it's the Word of God changing us, 
conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, a praise that overflows from the truth of his word and from what he's doing to build up his body. Those are the things that people can look at and point to and say, this is a place where the spirit of God dwells, not speaking in tongues, not flashy lights, not all of those other things, but discernment and growth and transformation and changed lives. That's evidence that God is moving and that God is working. So this morning, there's an opportunity as always for you guys to respond. For some of you guys, that might be, you you know, you can look at this text and recognize that you have desired spiritual gifts that are not for the good of the body. They are for your benefit. They are for whether you are exalted. They are for whether you are praised. And maybe you need to just take a second and respond and get right with God and, and ask him to help you. Because apart from God, none of us can do anything to pursue love the way that Paul says, to pursue that sacrificial love that seeks the good and building up of others. We don't have that. And maybe you, maybe you need to get before God and ask him to give that to you and then to give you the gifts that will help you live that out. Maybe that's the way some of you need to respond this morning. Others of you, if you've never trusted in Christ, then all of this seems like craziness. That we would sit around in a room and read a 2,000-year-old book and because of that go, amen, man, this is relevant. Man, this speaks into my life. Well, let me tell you a secret. That's what the Bible says. That only happens because of the Holy Spirit. So as we're thinking about the gifts that we can be given, if you've never trusted in Christ, the very first gift that you were given is the Holy Spirit. And what it helps you to do is to see and read the word of God and to know the truth that it's in it and for your life to be changed to match that of Christ. And so this morning, I wanna offer you just an opportunity to respond. The band's gonna sing, but, but take time and get right with God. If you need to talk to somebody, I'm, I'm here. That's what I'm here for. But spend this time, respond to God. God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you even for the difficult subjects that, Lord, on the surface we would look at and go, what could we possibly get out of a text like this? And yet your word is so full of truth. God, you challenge us because you love us. You call us because you have so much a better way, Lord. In this moment, would you confront sin? Would you help us to seek repentance, Lord? Would you help us to change? Lord, and for the people in this room, Lord, that don't know you, Lord, that have never trusted you, that aren't following you with their lives, God, that stand in that place of separation from you, condemned by their sin, Lord, would they repent? Would they turn and run to Christ, Lord, who is ready to forgive them, who paid the price for every sin that they could commit, Lord, and who seeks to restore that relationship with you and fill us with your spirit, God, would there not be anything, Lord, that would keep anybody from from trusting in you today? Lord, today is the day for salvation. And would you give them the boldness, Lord, to share with this congregation this decision that they've made? Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. Speak to us now in this time, Lord, and help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.